One of the things that um, my wife and I, Deanna and I, wanted to do um, during the fall was to make as many family members as possible before our oldest takes off to the Navy, which he does today. And uh, one of those things that we decided to do, and some of you who are my Facebook friends already know this, um, but some of you others don't. Not that I wouldn't be your friend if you asked me. But um, as we decided on Thanksgiving, on Wednesday night and Thursday night, to actually go up and stay in Yosemite as a family, just the five of us, but wait for it, we're going to stay in a yurt, um, more technically a, a tent cabin, but yurt just sounds so much more adventurous than a tent cabin. You know, a little, I don't know, maybe 10 by 10 space with nothing between us and the outside air, but a little thin piece of uh, canvas and plastic. And um, we saw the forecast of the weather, and it was supposed to get down really cold um, when we were there. So we packed, I couldn't even see out the rearview mirror of my car, because we, it was packed with blankets and pillows and hats and jackets. We had a space heater and, of course, a Monopoly game. Uh, that is, a, you know, standard fare for, for a good family time. And we got there, and we set everything up. And um, when I say space heater, I, it, it barely deserves to be called a space heater. Um, it, it probably is like sticking your hand in front of your own breath. That's, that's about what it came out <sighs> You know, all five of us next to this little thing, you know. <laughs> we didn't want to blow the circuit, so we took the, you know, one that didn't have a real high yield. So uh, anyway, all that to say, we bundled up. Um, we slept with multiple layers on. It looked like a <laughs> Christmas story, like a tick about to pop. Um, and... Uh, and, and then multiple blankets, layers, so you just like two pigs under big blankets, you know, just covered. And, um, and I had this hat on, and we, all of us slept that way. With, with those hand warmers, you know, that you shake up and they get hot in our socks. I just, that was, that was a family memory, right? Well, I, the first night, it got down to nine degrees. Nine degrees. And I remember, you know, I can't sleep with something over my face, so my face has to be out. My my son, he can cover himself with 50 blankets, and he can somehow breathe and survive under there. I don't know how it works. But me, so I felt the coldness, you know, and it's just there all around, even with our little heater going, you know. And, uh, And I kept waking up through the night, just, and you know what I was thinking? I was waking up going, is it getting light out yet? It's like, nope, back to sleep, or tr- attempt to go back to sleep, and then um, and I'd wake up again. It's getting light out, because, you know, when it gets light out, the sun comes out, and it gets warm, at least warmer. And uh, so I probably woke up four or five times each time, going, is it light out? Nope, dark. Try to go back to sleep. Is it light out? Nope, dark. Finally, you know, after what felt like 100 years, um, that I looked, woke up, and sure enough, there was this, like, soft glow on the side of the tent. And I can't tell you how excited I was for the sun to come out. I, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was jazzed about a sunrise, more than I've ever been jazzed before about a sunrise, because I just wanted to be, be warm. Now, let me just say, as crazy and stupid as it is, that was one of the best memories um, in the fall. Crazy, stupid maybe, but fun, nevertheless. I guarantee you my children will never forget that, and I certainly know I won't. <laughs> Waiting for the dawn. Waiting for the dawn. You know, the Bible uses that metaphor of waiting for the dawn to talk about the dawn of hope and the dawn of joy. And we meet two people in this story that I just read, uh, Simeon and Anna, both of whom are waiting for the dawn. And it's, it's, it's in a way that is very rich and convicting uh, because they're looking for 
and they receive something that they've been living for and wanting to experience in their lives so long. You know, I, I find it interesting that in the Gospel of Luke, and this is probably a literary feature of his, but the very first people to embrace Christ in Jerusalem the place of God's revelation, the place where God was worshipped, the place where God made his name known, um, were Simeon and Anna, two elderly people, first to meet him at the beginning of his life. And at the end of his life, Luke also records two witnesses, um, one who was being crucified with Jesus, um, who said, you know, when you go into your father's kingdom, remember me. That's one witness. And the second witness, you know who it was? It was a Roman centurion. So two witnesses at the beginning of life, two witnesses at the end of his life, kind of a a motley crew, if you will, not people you'd expect to be drawn by the Spirit of God to behold the Son, both in his birth and also his his death, both of which took place in Jerusalem. But these two, I don't want to take them separately. You could do that. I just want to look at them together because both of them are examples of what it means to wait, what it means to hope. And in the story that I just read, um, you have both uh, hope anticipated, or hope waiting, and you also have this hope realized. Hope waiting and hope realized. And the way in which they they wait is instructive for us as believers who are also called so many times to wait, which is one of the most difficult things to do in life, and I think you would resonate with that. You'll notice that both of them are described that way. Verse 25 says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the man was righteous and devout. And I think part of his righteousness and his um, devotion is defined by what's underlined in verse 35, because he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting. Anna, same thing. Almost the same phrase, just a couple of different words. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting She's part of a group of people at the temple who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Waiting. Both of them are people who wait in hope, in expectant hope, um, that God was going to do something. And, you know, through the scripture, and maybe it's one of the hardest commands um, to follow, um, is the command repeatedly. And I can't, there's, there's too many, too many verses to cite. How many times we're called upon to wait for the Lord. Um, And this is what they're doing. They're living out the Psalms. Um, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. That is, God's hope will never disappoint for those who wait. Verse 14 of chapter 27 of Psalms. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. 33.20, our soul waits for the Lord or for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. 37.7, be still before the Lord or Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And I could just go on and on and on and on about the waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. So one of the things that waiting does for us when we're willing to wait in hope for God to act is it honors him. It allows him to be God. God of the schedule, God of the calendar, God of our lives. That God doesn't bow to the, um, to the impatient whining of his people wishing that he'd come a day earlier. But rather when we're willing to wait, what we say to God is, you're God, you know timing, you know the calendar, so I wait for you. It also says that what we wait for is actually worth it. 
what he promised is worth it. And it shows that we actually trust him. That's, that's why waiting is so important. God is glorified when his people trust him enough and think that his hope is worthy enough and that God is sovereign enough to be trusted. That is one of the reasons why we're called to wait. And as I said, Ananiah, or excuse me, um, Simeon and Anna are both examples of this, this waiting. And there are certain aspects of their waiting, just observations, if you will, that may help us or challenge us. One is that you find that their, their waiting or their hope is an enduring hope. The sense of both of these lives is they're elderly people um, and that they've hoped and waited for this moment for a really long time. Simeon is, is at the indication, as you may have sensed when we read it, is that he's on the edge of death and finally says, finally, now I can die in peace because I saw it. I actually got to experience what God promised and what, um, what he hoped for. Um, Anna, uh, excuse me, Anna is even more explicit in terms of just the longevity of her hope. Verse 36 says she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when he was a, she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Um, she did not depart from the temple worshiping, fasting, and prayer night and day. That is her, um, the, the sense is that this has been going on for a long time. Uh, it says when she was a virgin, from the time she was married until her, she lost her husband seven years. Uh, a good guesstimation as to how old people were, young women, when they got married is between 13 and 15, which means she probably lost her husband when she's 20 or 22. And then it says that for the next, however, you're going to do the math, 64, 66 years, depending on when she got married, she's at the temple. Day and night, praying, worshiping, and fasting in hope. You talk about somebody who doesn't give up. That's just, again, the, the sense is that she just continued to show up at the place where God was worshipped, praying and fasting for that one moment to occur. She didn't give up hope. She didn't give up on waiting. Reminds me a little bit of my, my mother-in-law when we used to, years ago, we just haven't done it in a while, we used to take off on Christmas Eve and drive all the way through the night uh, up to Washington to the little town of Squim. And uh, we'd drive all night, as, as some of you know, and, and um, her mom would worry. And as a result, she'd call us constantly. Where are you? Are you okay? Sometimes those roads were frozen over the Siskiyous. And uh, we'd get there, and inevitably, she would be out in the parking lot waiting for us. You know why? Because I, I don't think she ate. I think she stayed up most of the night. She was perched right there in front of the front living room window waiting for us. And then when she saw the car come, she was out in the driveway. And that's how I picture Anna. It's just like, you know what? I'm fixed on the window. I'm waiting for God to act for over six decades. That's, that's, that's waiting. That's hoping that God is actually going to act. But notice her hope is God-focused, in particular on the promises of God. She's waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, as Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Those things are things promised in the Old Testament. So their hope was tied to God himself, and in particular, the promises that he said he was going to fulfill. So that's where their hope is, is tied to. Now, what's interesting about Anna's story is the state in which she hopes in God and in promises. She's described as a widow, right, for 60-plus years. The two categories of people in the Bible who are the most helpless and dependent upon everybody else are widows and orphans. Don't have 
rights to property. So they're completely at the, uh, dependent upon society or family or people to take care of them. One would think that her primary hope would have been to have another husband, but it wasn't. There's a deeper, farther, um, more powerful hope that she held on to, and that is the hope of God acting on her behalf. So it's a, it's a, it's a God-focused hope, and that, that's where ultimate hope must be found, is, is in that. Not, not just in the provision of temporary needs. Now, God wants us to pray for temporary things. He wants us to pray for health and wants us to pray for healing. He wants us to pray for um, people who are sick and so forth. He calls us to pray for that, and people in the Bible pray for those things. And we find God's people praying and looking forward to the hope of being delivered from particular enemies and so forth. But at the end of the day, the deepest, most abiding hope that gives you joy is the hope in God's promises, not just the outcomes that we hope for. And then, the, um, and then the, the third thing I notice is that, at least in the case of Anna, um, she waits with a group, um, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's speaking to the all who were waiting. She is part of a group. You know, hope stays alive, and we're much more um, strengthened to wait when we're with people who are doing the same thing. I can't wait till the Lord finally acts. I can't wait until the Lord finally offers forgiveness fully and finally. I can't wait until God shows up in human history. That kind of communal um, atmosphere, which is really what we're doing here. Part of what we do here in worship is to look back at the cross and to remember this is what God did and to celebrate who we are now because of what God did in the first coming of Jesus in the same way that we're supposed to gather together and be reminded of the great hope that we share. To be reminded we're living for something bigger and higher than just next week or next month or the next election or, or the next job. There's something bigger out there that we have to constantly encourage each other to raise our eyes and look farther to something that is certain and something that is eternal, not just temporal and fleeting. Those are, those are if you will, three aspects that you just find. We're, we're in a place where many of us are called to wait too, and, and, and this is the kind of, um, if you will, uh, example that reminds us that, you know what, I need to have an enduring hope, and that hope needs to be fixed on God and his promises, and I need to be within a family and a community that helps to f- uh, reinforce and to stir up our hope as we wait for the Lord. You know, one f- just side comment because it kind of ties into um, what Pearl shared, in which God took away her eyesight, and then through that, um, she was able to experience greater dimensions of God's love. I know that's a hard lesson for us, and it's hard to hear sometimes. But it's interesting to me that God took away this woman's husband for over six decades, and in probably those six decades, she learned to live for something more. She learned to hope in something bigger than just a marriage. That's, that's, that seems to be how, how God often works, is that he um, will put us in a place of powerlessness so that we're almost forced to drop to our knees and say, I can't do this, but I know you can, and I know you will. I know that's been a lesson in my life. It's like one of the things God, and I don't like it, 
But one of the things God does in my life is he brings me to a place where I have to acknowledge that I am helpless. But it's in those times when you can acknowledge that you are helpless that um, God shows himself to be powerful and faithful to us. New dimensions of, of who God is. There's two examples of hope. And you know what? Hope realized tells us that, um, that God's hope, when he comes through, it never disappoints, not even once. Because both of these people, and after years and years and years of waiting, we find them um, experiencing the realization. Only the realization, let's make the point more sh- sharp, is that God's promises to his people, his promises to us, the most important words ever spoken, are realized ultimately in Christ. So in Simeon, he, he, he's, he's praying and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel and then he sees the child and he holds up the child and he blesses God because he knows the consolation is found in, in this child and who he would become and what he would do. Same thing with Anna. She is a prophetess, so the sense is that she knew that the child has arrived and that that child is the redemption of Jerusalem, that is redemption, all in this, this child. The greatest promises and greatest desires of our humanity are found in this child. And they're, they, they, they're holding, or at least Simeon is holding, the Christ child, and the, the response is euphoric joy. Simeon starts spouting praise, prophetic praise back to God. And what does Anna do? She goes and starts telling all of her friends. That's what she does. And that's what joy does when uh, hope is realized, is willing to just to praise God and, and to tell others. That's, that's what both of them do. But notice those two words. And really that encapsulates um, what they were waiting for and what is most precious in God's promises. Consolation and redemption. I love the word Consolation. Comfort, relief. <laughs> How many of us don't find ourselves in a place where you're just wishing you had relief? And I'm not talking about R-O-L-A-I-D-S. Yeah. Right? Relief from stuff. Um, I find it also interesting in terms of relief that both of these people were elderly. Something happens um, in age. And I'm midway through, so I'm seeing it, and I can't imagine if I live another 30 years how much more I'll see. But life is a little bit like one of those cheap pieces of jewelry. Looks great when you first buy it. Shiny, wonderful, looks like the real stuff. Looks like it'll last forever, like, and always be valuable, but then, because it's cheap, all the, all the paint starts to wear off. And pretty soon you realize that the thing that was once so shiny is now dull. And it isn't what you once thought it was. As good as life is, as good as life is, when we start out, we often think of life like a brand new piece of cheap jewelry. That it's going to be all of that plus a bag of chips. But then the longer you live, the more you realize that there is pain and suffering and corruption attached to every aspect of life. Every, that you can't find a single place where c- corruption hasn't touched or where suffering does not invade. There's not a single place. You can search all over the galaxy and you're not going to find it. It just doesn't exist. We think it's going to be in 
having children, or we think it's going to be in having an amazing career, or we think it's going to be in retirement, or we think it's going to be in a, in a perfect health. And the fact of the matter is, all of that stuff, there's nothing pure. And the older you get, the more there's that longing for, can there be some relief? Can there be some consolation? Can there be some, some comfort? You know, both of these individuals, both Simeon and Anna, um, were, were old enough to remember when General Pompey of the Roman legions marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the city and damaged the temple. And you know what? They must have thought, you know, here we are again. One more time. How many times do the people of Israel have to live in rebellion against God? And how many times does God have to come in and wipe things out as a, as a judgment? Like, who's going to finally fix this problem that we have? Who's going to fix the rebellious heart? Who's going to actually pay the atoning price for God's people? When's it going to end? When is it going to happen? Once for all. There is only one once for all when it comes to redemption and consolation, and it's found in Christ. The once for all. He's the only one who can, who can stop the endless cycle of Rebellion and judgment, rebellion and judgment by offering his life as a sacrifice to atone completely for the sins of his people and to give us a spirit that now reorients the heart to actually want to love and serve God. The only one. You can sit, with that in their heart, you can sense, like, when they're holding this, like, this is it, this is the consolation, this is, the, this is what we've needed. Consolation by way of redemption. Sometimes pictures, or should I say analogies, help us to experience a little bit more of a word, like redemption. If you're in church, you probably hear that so much, you're like, redemption kind of loses its significance because you hear it so much, or maybe you don't even know what it means. It means to be set free at a price, basically. And I imagine myself, and I've done this, I imagine myself, what it would be like to be a slave in the 18th century in the South? And to know not only that I am somebody else's property to do with as they please to sell or buy, but that my wife that I cherish so much is someone else's property and someone can take at any moment and sell her so that I no longer have my wife that I love next to me or that the children that I love and that I raised from infancy can be sold off that I never see again. I can't imagine that kind of slavery. But that's, 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 the world in which we live, we are enslaved both death and sin. That's the slavery we live in. But imagine that a, that a wealthy man comes along and you happen to be one of those slaves with your wife and your children that can be sold at any moment. And he says, you know what? I will take him and her and those three kids. And he pulls out the bills and he pays. Now, if you were the slave, you'd be thinking, oh, here we go, just transferring slavery to slavery. I work for one owner, now I'm going to work for another owner. But owner over here who just paid the money to redeem the wife, the husband, and three kids says, you know what? I have a place for you to live. You're no longer going to be my slave. But I, I, I have a room for you, fully furnished. I have a closet full of clothes for you and shoes. And I have this huge table in my dining room. And it has the best foods possible. And you know what? All of it is yours. I have bought you not to be a slave. I have bought you to be my family. God has released us. He has 
freed us from that slavery. Not just to be slaves to him, but to be family with him at his price. That's, that's redemption. That's amazing. To know in all of this, in the person of Jesus, the payment that springs us out of that condition of slaves to sin. Slaves to the world. Slaves to death. That's all this tied up in the birth of this child. You can understand maybe a little bit more why um, they were so joyful at, at, at what was taking place. All comes to us in the person of Christ. Now listen, and I close with this. Simeon and Anna waited for the arrival of God. We stand on this side. He's come. He's laid the foundation of our redemption. He's laid the foundation of our consolation. And you know what? We keep going back to those things, to his first coming to realize that, yes, we are once for all forgiven. We are once for all loved. We are once for all accepted. We are once for all justified. But we still, like them, are waiting we still, like them, are waiting for the return, the second advent of, of God himself in the person of Christ. Which means we have to be people who are waiting like they were, fasting and praying, looking out that window, wondering when is the day going to arrive, knowing that hope will never disappoint and believing that we're going to see the day. That's, that's our time. I was saying, listen, the time is set. Trust me. Trust that what I'm going to do is worth waiting for and let me be God in your life. Wait for me to be God in your life. Allow me to serve as your God. And you know what? That's where the joy comes from. You know what's interesting? You might be thinking, this is the advent of joy. Why are we talking about hope? Well, you know what? There is no such thing as hope without joy in it. Um, hope is really, in my thinking, it is the joyful anticipation of the joy to be realized. Right? It's the joyful anticipation of the joy to be realized. That's, my kids live that out all the time. My little, little guy had a ten, his 10th birthday this last Thursday, and for the previous week, he'd wake up every morning. Usually, it's like trying to raise the dead to get my youngest one up in the morning. But this time, he's like, pop right out of bed. He goes, five more days till my birthday. Down on the couch, good attitude, everything. Why? The joyful anticipation of the joy to be realized. Happy kid, day four, four more days. Until my birthday, three more days, happiest kid. Then after his birthday, well, now I'm raising the dead again. <laughs> but that's it, is to recognize that hope is the joyful anticipation of the joy to come. And, and, and church, the joy that is, that, is, that is coming. Even if it feels like, metaphorically speaking, you're in a yurt and it's nine degrees outside and it's dark. And that's where you're at. It's the dawn's coming. And to live in that joyful anticipation of the fact that someday, like they saw 
the Christ in infant form. Someday we will see the Christ in all of his majesty and all of his glory face to face. And that gives us joy in the here and now, anticipating the joy of that day. Amen? Amen. It, I did get back to joy, right? Not just hope. <laughs> Lord, if we just say thank you. Thank you for being so good. Thank you for being um, so faithful to your promises. Thank you for giving us not just the gift of a Savior, but you gave us yourself. And um, Lord, we ask that in our days in which we are easily distracted by the shiny, um, cheap necklaces and the ch- cheap um, beauties, that you would just remind us to set our hope on the things that are eternal, the things that, that matter, on the things that you provide, and the things that you have offered to us freely and forever in Christ. And for those, Lord, who don't know you this morning, Gosh, I pray, Lord, that they would come to faith in this truth. Um, for you have declared, Lord, that it is it, as many as receive this Messiah, this one who is the redemption and consolation of Israel, as many as received him and believed on his name, you gave the right to become children of God. So I pray this morning, this, this Advent season, that perhaps you will open the heart of someone here to believe the truth and know that they are a child of God because of what God has done in sending his son, Jesus Christ. And I pray this to your great name and also to the health and to the goodness and to the eternal glory of your people. Amen.